0: Another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream and you can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.
1: Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world and the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough... Or even if they don't dictate it a little bit differently today than usual, I am in the home office doing a listener call-in show. So, uh, you can't call in live if it's your first show. You've probably downloaded it so you know the show's not done live. But I do have a number at 866-65-Think that you can call and leave a message. And I will do my best, uh, to schedule shows like this on occasion and go ahead and try to deal with the backlog of questions that I have. We had some really great questions coming in and, uh, I thought it would be a good time to do another one of these. And I have the opportunity to be at the house today. So, uh, you get better audio. Quality and we get to hear from you, which makes a good show. Let's knock out a little bit of house cleaning before I go taking the questions. So, again, I want to remind everybody about the Region 5 get together, bug out, camp out, hang out, if you want to call it whatever, Uh, Memorial Day weekend down near Goldthwaite, Texas. Details are in our forum. Please come on down, come one, come all. Uh, the Members Support Brigade. If you think you get more than 25 cents in value per episode of the Survival Podcast, consider joining the Members Support Brigade and help support the show and get exclusive content only available to members of the Support Brigade. Uh, Dirt Time 2009. Probably going to let that one go for a couple weeks, uh, other than just to mention I'm going to be there because I think it's pretty damn near closed up. Uh, if you're interested, go see if you can still register. I'm not sure if you can. Um... There's a Lights Out audio preview available as well on the site, uh, which is me narrating uh, David Crawford's book, Lights Out. The first couple chapters are there uh, for a free download. I also need to welcome a new sponsor, uh, Tactical Response Gear. Um, James Jaeger has been welcomed into the fold of sponsors, and uh, moderators approved him, obviously, very quickly, no problems. Uh, I think several have actually gone and shot uh, at Tactical Response And uh, James is a great guy And he's also agreed to come on the show And do an interview with me uh, But you can see his banner on the forum He has kind of a banner I let his old banner in I have a new banner being put together for him That will match the uh, the way the other banners look on the site uh, So our advertising is beginning to start filling up So if you're interested in advertising On the Survival Podcast You need to get a hold of us uh, And we'll put you through the review process And just... uh just like uh, everybody else, even though uh, James is well-known, he had to go through an approval process with the moderators, and that's how we do advertising here. It's so a little bit differently. If you see somebody advertised on my show and uh, endorsed by me on the air, that's a personal endorsement. That means I personally vouch for and I personally back for them. My show is not in the business of selling advertising. It's in the business... Of providing and entertaining providing information to entertaining users, so this show's about you, not the advertisers but let 's welcome the sponsors that are helping to make this show possible and uh, if you really want first rate training on how to deal with situations where you may have to defend yourself with a handgun or or any other weapon for that matter. Consider taking a course of tactical response. Uh, I'm looking forward to getting the opportunity if I can make some time to go out and shoot with uh, James and his instructors. It is absolutely first-class training all the way. So uh, let's uh, go ahead and let that wrap up the house cleaning. Let's go ahead and take our first call.
0: Hi, Jack. Shannon Appleby here from the Member's Brigade. I've had a few people asking me, Shannon, what do you think I had to do with my tax returns? Should I be the good American and and uh, take my tax return and buy that big screen TV and put that money back into the system, or should I put it in savings for you know for if things happen or if times get tough or or just just for the future should I keep it in savings or should I just keep it in cash? I wanted to ask you, Jack. What do you think about that? Let me know on your show. Well, Shannon,
1: that's a great question and. Um... You know, it's just funny. Yesterday I was listening to the radio at lunchtime and I was listen, listening to Rush Limbaugh. And he's not my favorite person by any means and he gets old and he gets annoying to me at times, but uh, he does bring up some really great points and he actually had Obama uh, quoted, uh, you know, actually played a, an audio of Obama speaking. Uh, and talking about the increased spending and why they had to do it. And basically the President of the United States said yesterday that the reason we're in a recession is your fault and my fault right now because of what you're just asking. Because the, you know, economic times got hard, We all stop spending our money, and if we all stop spending our money at the same time, then nobody's buying anything, and it makes the recession work, so it's up to the government to step up and temporarily increase spending. So, you know, we are bad Americans because we save our money, Shannon. You are bad, and I am bad, because I know you save your money, too. So here's how I actually would answer that question. It's your money. You have to make a decision based on your life, what you most want to do with it. I would say that, one, if you are led to believe that it's up to you to stimulate the economy by spending the money that you have, uh you're probably a fool if you actually believe that your individual spending is going to matter. Um, you're too small on a microcosm of the tax return that we get with as much money as we, we, we spend anyway. The other thing to understand is you've already spent that money. You spent it by giving it to the government, and they got to hold on to it for most of a year, and now they're giving it back to you. So your money was already in circulation in the coffers of government. It's already done all the dad gone stimulating that it needs to do, all right? And it's come back to you, and it's yours. Now you have to decide what you want to do with it. Personally, I would say the first thing you do when money shows up that you didn't have before is you put it in your savings account. Because if you do that, a mental thing is going to happen to you. You're not going to be so quick to spend it now. Now, you might decide you want to spend it, and you might spend it on something practical. You might go out and blow it because you damn well feel that you want to, and that's what you want to do, and you're financially well off enough that you can do that. Now, you've already paid off your debt. You've already got some press put together, and you want to go on vacation. I mean, it's up to you what you do with it, but do it because it's what you want to do with your money and your current life situation, not because the government tells you if you don't spend your money, you're hurting the freaking economy. Let me tell you something, folks. The first economy that you have to worry about is your economy, your household, your personal household. You manage your money. You manage your budget. You manage everything that goes on inside of your individual economy. And sure as hell, do not look to our government for an example of how to run your household because you'll be bankrupt in under a year. If you do Now my response Might sound a little agitated It's not agitated At Shannon I know the spirit In which he asked the question And I'm sure he knows That uh, I'm answering it that way I just don't want anybody else To think that In fact I asked Shannon Shannon sent me this question By uh, email So please call that in Because that's awesome So that was kind of A little bit of a setup. Let's go ahead And take the
0: next question Hey this is Derek From Kennedale, Texas Uh, I was wondering I've been I'm a new listener Probably two weeks But I've listened to Probably 30 of the episodes I hadn't really heard you say anything about emergency kits, like first aid kits and stuff. What would you pack in one? Just the normal stuff or anything special that you think ought to go in it? I hope you appreciate it.
1: Well, um, those of you who listened to yesterday's show would know that I actually just yesterday did a 50-minute episode, damn near 50 full minutes on... Um, how to uh, put together a bug-out bag, which is exactly that, a 72-hour emergency kit. So you might wonder, well, why did I go ahead and take this call today when I just did the episode yesterday? Because some comments came up, and along with this question, it brings up a good point. I went through a very exhaustive list of kind of like, you know, a holy grail of a bug-out bags yesterday. Maybe not for you, but for me. I mean, it's everything that I've come up with to put in my own personal 72-hour kit over the past couple of years that I've been working on assembling it. And uh, somebody said, you know, one thing about it is it's a lot like my camping setup, but it could be pretty expensive, especially if you're outfitting a family with it, right? And I'm like, you know what? It could be expensive. And along with this question, let me kind of address. Well, what do you do? I mean, I was talking yesterday about having a good knife, and I said my my personal choice is a USMC uh, K bar. Well, they're fifty bucks. And what if you don't even have a 100 bucks put together a bug out bag, let alone 50 bucks for a K-bar? So how would you real quick slide together a get-by emergency kit until you could slowly build up to something a little bit more, uh, I don't know if I want to use the word professional, but a little bit more complete? Well, hell, get yourself any bag. You probably have an old duffel laying around somewhere, something to contain what you have. Uh, I suggest a backpack if you have to end up on foot, but a lot of situations you'll be in your vehicle anyway, so you don't have to be on foot. Put together, find yourself some older clothes that you're still happy wearing, and put together a uh, you know a extra set of clothing, uh, short and long sleeves, and throw that in there. That shouldn't cost you anything. Uh, as far as food, you know, get some t- cans of tuna, some cans of chicken. If you eat sardines, some sardines. Uh, anything in a can. Put together some granola bars, some beef jerky, some nuts. Uh, you should be able to scrape together two to three days worth of food for an individual for under fifteen dollars if you have to. Uh, get yourself a decent little knockback knife and a, and a decent little screwdriver and toolkit and throw that in there because you might need it. You can do that at the dollar store for 2 or $3. Uh, on top of that, make sure you put all the documentation together I talked about yesterday. You can do that for free. Uh, on top of that, make sure you have some water. I don't care if you get a bunch of old water bottles and fill them up with your faucet and dump them out and replace them every couple months so that they don't get nasty. And now at least you can get somewhere. So my my real answer to the question is go listen to yesterday's episode to get a complete breakdown. But my, my additional thing is I don't want when I do an episode like that for people to think, if I don't do that, then I don't have a bug out bag. Make do with what you have and then slowly build up from there if uh, if financially you need to. And if financially you need to be responsible about doing it because you're, you're not in a position where you're ready to do it yet. So I thought I'd throw that question in there uh, and expand a little bit on yesterday's episode. Let's go ahead and
0: take another call. Jack, love the podcast. Wondering if you could do a show regarding best ways to drive out of the Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex in case of emergency. Uh, This is Neil in Fort Worth.
1: Thanks. Well, Neil, um, obviously I really can't do an hour-long or even 30-minute show on just how to get out of Dallas or Dallas-Fort Worth area because I have people that listen from all over the United States. But I had a really cool answer set up for this one. And uh put you in the queue, and I was about to give that answer. And just before that, though, I got another call, and I decided to go ahead, and we're going to pause a second, we're going to listen to a second call, uh, where a caller, without knowing it, sort of answered this question for me. This will be pretty cool. Good
0: morning, this is Ash, a reluctant warrior on the forums from Cincinnati. Uh, out of my morning walk, trying to take care of one of my exes that I put on after I had my two kids, and I just wanted to comment on group planning for your... Uh, bug out locations I just did this in Google Maps they have a feature now I believe it might even still be beta testing where not only can you plan out the highway route the most efficient route to your location but you can also generate a route that avoids highways and also a walking route that we found really uh really easy to generate and really fast to do so just a quick comment there great show thanks so much You well alright well I'm guessing that
1: Reluctant Warrior must have some ESP that uh we don't really know about or maybe he didn't even know about because those calls actually came in back-to-back they were about five minutes apart uh... in the outlook queue, where these files get emailed to me off of my voicemail service from call eight and uh... It's one question one question and then basically an answer to it so like i said i can't really do a show on how do we get out of dallas but i can give you advice on how you figure out how you get out of whatever city you're in so it's not specific just to dallas and uh... google maps is what i was going to recommend but these are two new features Before I go on, let me say one real quick thing, though. People might be wondering, what was he talking about when he said get rid of one of his X's. Well, if you haven't been listening to the show for a while, I've been doing something lately. I've been eating at least two salads a week out of my home garden for lunch, and that's it. I get what's in my garden. If it ain't in my garden, I don't get it for lunch those two days. I'm trying to push it to three. And what I said about that is I've put one too many X's on my L, meaning my shirt size. I've gone from large to extra large. And I need to go back down to large, which is about normal for me, versus adding another X, so getting off one of my X's, he's doing it too, so that's cool. Well, here's what I'm going to do, though, with this Google Maps thing. These two new features I did not know about, so thank you for telling me about them. I'm going to go check this out. I'm going to learn all these new features in Google Maps, and then I have a computer program called Camtasia that allows me to actually video my computer screen, and you can see my mouse and see what I'm doing, and I can explain to you, you hear my voice and you see my actions at the same time. I'm going to create a video showing you, let's say, how to get from Dallas to Texarkana, because then you can use the features to get from anywhere to anywhere you want to for your city, so it's individually applicable to yourself. And I'm going to show you how to use these new features. I'm going to show you how to use the old feature that I've been using for a long time, which simply is put in the directions. It gives you the the most expedient route, and you can just manually start dragging the route around, and you can go figure these things out for yourself. But by the end of this week, I'll record that video. It might be this weekend that I actually do it, and I'll make it available. I'm not going to make this a Member Support Brigade-only video. I'm going to make this video available to anyone who wants to see it. So it's going to be completely available to the public. We'll call it a sneak peek video to give you an idea of the kind of content we provide in the members Support Brigade. And uh, that will be out by Monday at the latest. So great call. One asking a question, one answering. You two guys, thank you so much for those calls. Uh, it's just awesome the way that worked out. Let's go ahead and take another call.
0: Hey, Jack. This is Jed on form. forum. Um, I'm up here in Wyoming, and I'm going to build a raised bed garden. Um, I've always gardened in the past, but never did raised bed, so I'm going to try it. And I found a plan that incorporates a greenhouse over the raised bed. My question, I guess, is when can, um, up in Wyoming, um, we've been having, right now, uh, April 4th, it's been snowing for about a week. It's got about, about three feet of snow the past week. When can I... Start putting plants in the ground um, with ground temperature and stuff with the raised bed with the greenhouse over the bed. Um, that's the question I was asking. Great show.
1: Well, I thought I'd challenge myself today and take some questions I don't have a complete answer to, and I don't have a complete answer to that one. Just let me give you a couple of my thoughts. Number one, go to almanac.com, I believe it is. Whatever it is, I'll put a link for you in the show notes today. Stick your zip code in there and get your last frost date, and things that cannot handle freezing temperatures, um, you can't plant till after that date, or at least around that date, or if you start them inside and move them outside. Um, That much snow on the ground just makes me giggle a little as I look outside at my uh, 64-degree morning uh, with beautiful skies and a light breeze. Uh, But I digress. Um, Here's a couple thoughts on that. One, it's going to be very difficult for you to plant anything other than what you would call winter crops, even with a greenhouse up there in Wyoming with those nights because your greenhouse is going to lose a lot of its solar gain at night, especially with that much snow on the ground and things like that. That said, as long as this greenhouse is instead of going to like attach to the top of your raised bed, actually encircle your raised bed. And if it's not, I would alter to do it that way so that you actually have the greenhouse coming down to the outside of the ground and then the raised bed is fully contained within it rather than sitting on top of the rails of the bed. Uh, You're going to get a lot of warming temperature and that bed is going to keep its gain better at night than even the air temperature in there. So it's going to protect your roots. What I would say is until you're getting kind of at least toward the end of your frost period... Stick to things in there like broccoli, lettuces, and things like that. What you are not going to be able to pull off in that, in that situation with just the greenhouse are hot weather plants, squashes, tomatoes, peppers, that temperature of the air inside there is going to go down to whatever the air temperature is at night by the mid-range of the night. Now, there's some things you can do that will help, and I've tried these this year myself, and they've they've worked for me in my winter, but it's a lot less severe than yours. But it may help you during your spring where you're just occasionally going down there. You'd probably have to expand the size of the greenhouse to do this, but I took two 32-gallon black trash cans, filled them up with water, And during the cooler days where it was okay to leave everything closed up, left the greenhouse closed up, uh, they acted like heat sinks, and they got me through some pretty cold temperatures. I still ended up losing tomatoes even here in Texas in my greenhouse on days that went down into the 20s. So it's going to be tough without any kind of a heat source. Your other option is to put some sort of heat source inside the greenhouse. Even something as simple as a couple light bulbs will do a lot to keep the gain uh, that you've, you've gained. So I don't know where you're located is, uh, but it's going to be tough to do anything other than winter crops, and I'll see if I can get some more information on that and some more advice for you from gardeners in your area on how they deal with that weather extreme, but even when I was growing food up in uh, Pennsylvania, I didn't have to deal with three feet of snow uh, this time of year, so you got me a little bit off my game here, but that's the best answer I can give you for now. Let's go ahead and take another call.
0: Hey Jack, this is Jim from Richmond, Virginia. My question to you is, what can I do to prepare for an upcoming week-long trip? When I'm taking a plane to a city I've never been before, I've come to grips where I probably have to rely on the government during a time and a shit hit the fan scenario. But I would like to have a few plans to, you know, in case it does. Thanks for keeping up the good work. right, well, Jim,
1: that may be the best question that we've ever had called in. That is an awesome question. And it's good enough that I'm going to end up having to do a little bit of research and see how far we can take that. And I'm going to have to do an entire episode on being prepared for disaster while you're traveling. And I I guess I've thought about it before because I'll, I'll tell you what I do when I travel right now. Um, and how I deal with it but I never really thought about really being concise and and planning for it and if you think about it, it's when you're most vulnerable if you live in Dallas and you're in Atlanta and something really goes wrong you're farther away from your family you're farther away from your home you may not be able to get back and it makes me think of September 11th when I ended up stuck in Pittsburgh had to stay there 48 hours and finally rented a car and had to drive home versus uh, versus getting on a plane because I needed to get home here's my thoughts you don't really have to worry too much about clothing because you generally travel with that. One of the biggest things that you can do, though, is carry, you know, your toiletries with you uh, and some food with you and and right through the airport. Now you have to do this stupid thing with these little bottles in a one-gallon bag and all, but do it because even if nothing goes wrong, that's something that I found. I, I used to travel as a road warrior for a while. And if you're stuck in an airport for like 12 hours or longer, and I've been there, and just being able to go to the bathroom and freshen up, you know, it, down to I've been to the point where I was like so tired and so just sweaty from being carrying around bags all day and dealing with it. Basically, wash my hair in the sink in the bathroom, and I know that sounds kind of a little like ill, but hey, you know it's two a.m. You're tired, you feel nasty. It makes you feel better, so there's there's a good start. Um, carrying weapons with you may not be an option depending on where you're going. You have to check that. Uh, but things like putting a, a can of mace in your suitcase, even if you don't have it at the airport, I are not going to let you on a plane with it, but I think you're allowed to do that. I really haven't checked, so I don't know. But if you can somehow bring a means of self-defense with you, it would probably be a good idea. There's no way they're going to let you carry anything that's really decent for self-defense on an airplane, but you can probably put it in your checked baggage. Having maps of the area that you're going to, having routes from Google Maps before you get there of the areas that you want to go to anyway are probably a good idea, but having maybe go ahead and do some Google mapping and you get some plans to get the hell out of there if you have to, especially if you're in a situation where you're renting a car. Um, it probably makes sense to carry a little bit of extra cash with you. It makes sense to have people know where you're going. And just to be thinking about And that's what I've done up till now. But what I'm going to do, I'm going to put my head to this and I'm going to think, can we come up with a more concise way to deal with traveling? Because it's an awesome question. And like I said, I'm trying to challenge myself today and take in some questions I don't have complete answers to. That's one of them. Let me see what I can do about putting together a full episode for you.
0: Hey, this is Clinton or, uh, City Job Country Roots from the forum. I just wanted to call and say thank you. Thank you for your, your wonderful resource. Um, been really been a good help, big help and uh, helping me to see how to prepare for the future. Um, one of my questions I've heard a lot of you guys talking about strong pancake mix. I've heard that uh, something with a yeast and after a certain age it can become poisonous, so I don't know if there's any uh, anything any truth to, to that. Um, if any of the members of the forum can can uh, just talk to me about that if they if they know anything. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I think that was my big question um, Thanks for all you do again And uh, uh, God bless
1: Well, you know, that's a great question Because my initial reaction was, no Come on, that's not the way it is There's no way that there's a yeast that, you know, evolves in your pancake batter over time And if you just leave it there long enough, it turns poisonous and it will kill you um, I'm right, and I'm also wrong And I'm wrong because there is a truth to this. And what I did is I just went to Google, typed in Pancake Mix Poison, and the first result was Snopes, which is probably the best website in the world when you hear urban legends or urban myths to go check out. And it turns out there is some truth to this. And here's what actually did happen. A 14-year-old young man consumed two pancakes made with pancake batter that was stored open for about two years in a pantry. Uh, it was infected with this particular type of mold, and he had an allergic slash anaphylactic response to it and really fairly quickly died and departed from the earth because of the mold that grew in the pancake batter. The people that also ate the pancake batter did not become ill, but they only ate a little bit of it. They said it tasted funny. So one of the things we might want to be thinking about here is if your pancake mix, when you make a pancake out of it, has a funny taste to it, you may not want to eat it. A little bit more on this, though. The young man did not die because the mold was poisonous. He died because he had an allergic reaction to it. Now, the downside of that is you don't know if you're allergic to it until you consume it. So you're probably better off not consuming a mold that grows in our pancake mix. However... For preppers, it really just shouldn't be that big of a deal when you think about it. I mean, when we put away something like pancake batter for long term storage, we either would put it in, leave it in an original packaging and then seal it up from there or maybe put it into Mylar individually packaged or something like that. Uh, we're generally not doing long term storage with an open container. Which is how this actually happened. But it is a good thing to know about. It is a good thing to be aware of. And if your pancakes ever taste kind of funny, I mean, if they if they ever taste like rubbing alcohol, which is what the two other people said that uh, that didn't eat anymore said these things taste like, you probably shouldn't eat pancakes that taste like rubbing alcohol. I think I said the young man was fourteen. He's actually a nineteen year old young man. He had a history of mold allergies. And here's, you know, well, what was inside there? What what were the molds that actually were uh, were bad news? Well, there were actually four, and one of them, believe it or not, was penicillin. There was one called fursurium, one called macor, and one called asparagillus. Um, you know, those are like uh, some really uh, nasty things. I mean, I know we think of penicillin as something that... Uh, that will save your life, but not wild forms of it in unknown dosages, especially if you happen to be allergic to it. And then the other three are things that you really, I mean, a is something you really don't want in your body, even if you're not allergic to it, uh, at least not consumed in high levels. So um, there is some truth to this one, uh, something to be aware of, great question. But, again, if you're keeping your pancake uh, mix sealed properly and stored properly, probably not going to have to worry about this. But look out for alcohol-flavored pancakes
0: hey jack i just wanted to thank you for spending (laughs) an entire episode answering my question i just wanted you to know that it was very helpful to me um particularly the the parts about food storage um you know when you've been a grasshopper and you were raised a grasshopper you can look at what the ant does and you can try to replicate it but that doesn't mean you're doing it right um one of the questions i had a relates to the commonality of disaster. So in the commonality of disaster, the most likely thing that's going to happen, especially in an economic situation like now, is that you're going to actually lose your job. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on actually balancing food storage, savings, and debt elimination together, because immediately I think that you would need the savings, but things like not having food stored or having debt would definitely decrease your chances of survival so how do you man? how would a beginner manage that particular balance so say you have an amount of debt that you want to pay down but you also want to get an amount of surplus savings on the side it's is that a 50 50 thing to the debt or you know what do you recommend do you recommend getting your savings to a certain point you know one month three months and then paying down the debt, or pay down the debt. And save. I just a, just another question, but just wanted to thank you for your show. And you know, I'm really appreciative that you took the time to to answer my question. And you know, I've listened to all of the episodes you have up on the site, and I, I have to say, man, your show rocks. Thanks.
1: Well, that's another great question. It's one I've been getting a a lot of different versions of. And and the real answer is, in the end, you're going to have to make your own decision. You have to evaluate, well, how, how much prepping have you done or have you not done? How exposed are you? How much debt do you have? How long is it going to take to pay off? If you're looking at paying all your debt off in 90 days, you're probably better off just going ahead and doing it because it's going to give you so much more power when it's gone. Uh, that you can get on with prepping and saving and everything else. If you're completely exposed, you have zero prepping done. You're going to take a minimum of, let's say, a year or two years to pay off your debt. You kind of need to do a little bit of everything at once. One of the first things you really need to do, though, is put together at least uh, some level of emergency cash fund, at least $500, a 1000 is better. That's kind of step one to me. If you end up needing to go out and buy stuff, you can go out and buy it. Then I think you really need to. If you have a lot of debt, you need to focus more on debt than prep. And you can kind of slowly change the ratio as you as you get going forward and as you eliminate some of your debt. You always do the debt the same way: the smallest debt first. I don't care what the interest rate is. You kill it. You take the money from that. You compound it onto the next debt, and you keep doing that until they're all gone. There, there's a reason that you have to think this way, though. People would say, "Well, I'd rather have the cash than the debt." Well, if you let's say I have a credit card, now you're paying against your credit card and you owe five thousand dollars on this credit card because you were a knucklehead. Now you go ahead and you make a thousand dollars worth of payments on that credit card and you say, Well if I had the cash, I'd have the cash if I needed it. If you had to, you could always use the credit card and spend the money again. But you'll be a hell of a lot less likely to spend that money once you've already spent it on the credit card and you'll be more likely to try to figure out a way for yourself to wiggle out of the problem without compromising the debt you've already paid off and without liquidating cash you've already saved. Now you'll struggle a little harder. You'll think a little more. You'll work a little harder. If you just don't pay the debt and just keep saving cash, you're in a situation where the debt continues to grow and whenever you need it, you'll just spend the cash. So you got to kind of balance it and make your own decisions, but my belief is that you, you, a little bit of cash is priority one. Once you have some cash put away, priority two is the debt, and that's where the most goes after that. Once you've got that done, you can kind of split between what your savings are what your preps are until you get up to the level of preparation you want to. But the debt has got to go. It is a hole. You're like an ant in an ant-lion trap where you're struggling to get up the side of it. And Unless you focus on getting out, the ant's going to shoot the dirt at you, knock you down to the bottom of the whole knee. If you don't want to know what an ant-lion is, look it up online. It's an interesting little creature that we used to have in Florida all the time and used to just you know kill ants left and right uh, that would end up in these little funnel holes that these things would make, and they'd struggle and struggle and struggle and never get away. The only ones that would would just you know put pedal to the metal and I got to get out of here and that's how you got to treat your debt. So it's got to be really once you have a little bit of cash stored up, so you don't do stupid things. It's got to be your number one priority to a degree. Again, with prepping though, if you have nothing done, you got to do something at the same time. You got to figure out how to get it done.
0: Jack, this is Dave, also known on the forums as Wookie in the Forest. I have a uh, situation with some feral bees, and I was thinking about capturing these monsters and harvesting their honey. I have not heard or of any topic that you've done on such and was wondering, uh, if you have any advice or reference material, situation like that. Thought it'd be a
1: decent show idea. If anything, keep up the good work and, uh, you have a good day buddy. Bye. Uh, well that's another really cool question and I said I wanted to challenge myself today and take questions I don't exactly have the answer to. And, and that's one I don't have a full answer to but I'm gonna give you my thoughts on it. First let me say uh, on beekeeping, I think it's a great idea. It is in my personal future plans when I finally move to Arkansas and I can spend more time dealing with things and I won't have these neighbors in the suburban area that are real upset over a beehive to have a couple hives. And when I do it, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do, and this is what I suggest you would do if you're serious about getting to beekeeping. I'm going to find a local person there that already keeps bees. I'm going to ask them to be a little bit of a mentor to me and help me figure this out. I'm going to purchase uh, my hive supplies and... Uh, my colony, either from that mentor, if they're into selling stuff like that. If not, I'm going to ask them where they got theirs, and I'm going to buy from a known supply. I'm not going to start out trying to uh, domesticate a wild colony of bees. On top of that, you didn't tell me where you're calling in from. Well, if you're calling in from New Mexico or Texas uh, or a lot of the Southern California, you could be looking at a colony of Africanized bees, and you may need to get a professional in there to eliminate them. Uh, One way or another, you might want to get a pro in there to take a look at what you've got going on and give you some advice. Now, here's a thought that I had. I don't know if this is the case or not. I haven't really looked into beekeeping a lot yet, but professional beekeepers probably know how to take that colony and turn it into a domesticated colony. There's probably risk associated with it, but they're probably prepared to do it. You may be able to get in touch with a local person that keeps bees as a mentor. Have them come out and captive cap, you know capture that colony and show you how to do it. Let them take on the the task of you know domesticating the colony and then either maybe they would exchange to you a starter colony or sell you at a discount a starter colony and that might be a great way to reach out to a mentor i don 't know exactly how genetics with bees work, but uh, I do know that eventually they create new colonies and bringing new genes uh, bloodlines into anything even insects is a good idea. so they may be or they may not be interested in that, but my gut is. Start with known supply and get some mentorship, and you'll probably have a lot better of a first-time experience as a new beekeeper. That's what I'm going to do. That's all I can suggest there.
0: Hi, Jack. This is Michelle in Salt Lake City, Utah, and my husband and I are going to plant a vegetable garden this year, and I would like some information on how to harvest the seeds from this year's garden to plant for next year. I mean, we've all heard the saying, you can count the number of seeds in an apple, but you can't count the number of apples in a seed. But who's actually tried it? I mean, uh, every year we go and buy our little seed packets, and we don't really think about what was involved to get them there. So I'd love to hear about that. Thanks. Love your show. Bye. Uh,
1: another great question. Uh Saving seeds is a great survival skill. It's something that I recommend everybody learn how to do it, at least on one level or another. Um, Saving seeds is something I've actually done an entire show on in the past. It was one of the early shows of the crappy audio, but you can just go uh, go to thesurvivalpodcast.com, dot type in the search box "saving seeds," and you'll probably find that episode fairly easily. Let me give you a little bit of uh, of information on that note, and this will be the last call I take today. Um, Number 1, I would recommend you start out trying to save seeds for just one or two plants. It's probably the best way to do it and plant more of that particular variety than you think you need for personal use so that you get good cross-pollination and then do not plant any other variety of that particular vegetable at least in the general area. It keeps a good amount of separation. So let's say you wanted to start out saving seeds for Brandywine tomatoes or German striped tomatoes or black creme tomatoes. Plant yourself, say, nine in, in two rows of three. You'll get great cross-pollination. That way, close together um, tomatoes of that one variety, just the one variety. And you might even want to take the step during that uh, that, that summer when everything's blooming to go ahead and do some hand pollination of some particular blossoms. In other words, get yourself a Q-tip. Go to plant A get some uh, pollen from one of the blossoms, put it on plant B, mark that blossom, and single out that tomato because you know you've done a good cross-pollination there. Uh, And start with maybe one variety of pepper, one variety of tomato that you save seeds for, and start developing your own heirloom line of that seed. Even though it's Cherokee purple uh, tomato or uh, California wonder pepper, it can become your family's heirloom line because you can select a breed for your area, pick the best fruit, over and over and over again. If you try to save seeds from everything your first time you're doing this, you're probably not going to be as happy. There are certain things that will cross-pollinate very easily you have to be careful with. One of them is squash. If you're going to try to save squash seeds, make sure if you're going to do two different varieties of squash, you stagger their plantings by at least a month so that they're blossoming at totally different times because just about every variety of squash and pumpkin, even summer or winter, will cross-pollinate and it'll ruin your seeds for you. Saving tomato seeds is pretty easy though. It's one the easiest ones to do. It's a great thing to start out with developing your own particular line for. All you do is you take your tomato and you mash all the seeds and the goo into a jar. You fill it up with water. You clover it with a cloth. And the, the, the scum will kind of float up and develop a mold on it. Don't worry about it. Let that... That mold develop, you let it sit for about three or four days, and almost all of your seeds will settle to the bottom. The ones that are on the top are the seeds that aren't any good. Pour off the top, the scum that is formed, and the seeds that are still floating. Take the other seeds, put them in a strainer, rinse them off, put them on a, a paper towel, let them dry uh, completely out. Put them into an airtight container. Store them in the refrigerator is probably the best way to do it. They'll keep for up to five years. They'll definitely do well for you for two to three years of storage if you do that with them. It is that simple. Peppers are not much different. I'm not going to go into all the different vegetables, what you do. But if you go to SeedSaverSexchange.org, they give you a breakdown, separation rules, exactly how to save your seeds uh, for everything. I'll probably go ahead and do another episode on this and get more specific with because it's a great question. But one of the things I want you to think about as a gardener, Uh, and growing your own fruits and vegetables, is if you decide to specialize in two or three varieties, 50 years from now, somebody may be talking about your family's name and calling it, you know, the Smith Brandywine or the Smith Pepper or the, you know, the Thompson Pepper, whatever your family name is. Heirloom really is not about just being open-pollinated. There's plenty of seeds that are open-pollinated. Heirloom is a line that was developed by a specific individual or group of individuals for a specific, specific reason. and In other words, Heirloom is about tradition and something you hand out, so it's really something great to look into. Uh, folks, I think I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up there. This has been a great show. I'll try to do more shows like this. Audacity gave me some trouble. I had to re-record several of these four or five times. I haven't even generated. This one yet, so I hope it doesn't happen to me again. Uh, but anyway, it was worth it because these are the kind of shows I really like to do because I get to hear from you and I know I'm giving you what you want because I'm answering your questions. And uh, with that, I'll just have to say this has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough scream, or even if they don't. And you can holler, it
0: really doesn't matter because it all gets spent.